Hello and welcome everyone to episode six of the Saturdays are for the Byzantines podcast. I'm your host, Professor Wren. Disclaimer, obviously not an actual college professor. I don't work for any university in the United States, which is where I'm from, or anywhere else in the world for that matter. Just the, uh, the title indicates that, you know, we're this class taught at a university, which is really basically the only place where you can uh, study Byzantine history, unless you're at some sort of uh, uh, unicorn uh, school, in, uh, like high school in the United States, where uh, the history curriculum entails anything other than U.S. history with like a year of world history or something like that, you're probably not going to find anything like this uh, material unless you were to go to college. And you know, even those who go to college, even those who study history in college, probably not studying Byzantine history, you know, my, my own experience in, uh, you know, obviously I was a history major in college and, I would, you know, most of the people, most of the other history majors around were not studying this type of thing. I took two, uh, semesters worth of Byzantine history, really liked it. And so, you know, now I kind of bring what I learned to you, uh, in this podcast, uh, and kind of the goal, uh, in this project that I've that I've started here is to to you know kind of present this sort of I, I'm it's a podcast series but I'm really the way I think about this it's more it's more of a lecture series almost like if you were to take you know Byzantine history as a class in in college but obviously you know this you can get for free versus paying you know however many hundred dollars per credit you would have to uh, pay if if you took this in college, you know, it's, it's available for free on, we're on iTunes, Apple podcast, uh, Google play, make sure to give us a follow or subscribe and a five-star rating. If you're listening to this on any of those platforms, if you're listening on YouTube, please give us a subscribe and hit the notification bell. So you never miss another episode. Uh, I don't really know why I say we, uh, when I talk about the YouTube chat, cause I'm the only person here who's doing this. I don't have anyone really helping me out with this. I'm figuring out the technology aspect of this as I go. I do understand that a couple of our episodes are not available on YouTube, even though they're available on like Spotify, for example. Uh, part of that was, you know, just in my getting this project going, you know, trying to figure out how to get it all uploaded to all of the different platforms. Um, took a while to figure out how to get all that going, but from now on, we should be good. All of the episodes should be on YouTube as well as uh, Spotify and Apple Podcast and Google Play, and maybe we'll expand in the future. Maybe we'll go on to like, I don't know, Stitcher or iHeartRadio. I don't know. Does, any, does anyone listen to anything on iHeart? I've never talked to anyone who said, I was listening to a podcast on iHeartRadio the other day, but uh, you, know, you know, if you do and, and there's interest for it, then we can put it on there as well. Um, but I know there was a there was a question about the availability of episodes on YouTube versus other platforms from a listener the other day, so I just wanted to address that in an episode. But anyway, so now we get into the real meat of today's episode lecture, if you will. And so we're just just to recap, we're coming off of the uh, the emperor, the reign of uh, Julian the Apostate, 
who had just died during a disastrous campaign against the Persians. Uh, Julian was the Roman emperor who attempted to revert the Romans back to uh, paganism, which did not work out for him. And then he also led a campaign uh, against the Persians, which really also did not work out very well. The, the campaign did not take any new territory, uh, cost the Romans you know, valuable time, money, soldiers, resources, and Julian died in the process. So really uh, not a great moment here for the Roman Empire. And so as the Roman army retreats from Persia back into Roman borders, they need to select a new emperor because obviously there's no emperor. Julian was the only emperor at the time. He didn't have an imperial he did not have an imperial colleague at that point, as a lot of other situations we, we've talked about here do have, right? There was not an Eastern and a Western emperor at this point. It was only Julian. And so the candidate who's chosen as the next emperor is a guy named Jovian. Now I'm not going to tell you much about Jovian because he dies about eight months into his reign, uh, before the army even makes it all the way back to Constantinople. And so they need to select another new emperor. And after eliminating a couple of possibilities, uh, a guy named Valentinian is chosen to be the new emperor, and so he dons the purple. Now, Valentinian has a bit of a checkered history. Uh, he is a career soldier, career military man, and the first we kind of hear about him in terms of his his military background is that he was uh, a soldier, seemingly uh, lower middle level officer in the army uh, under the Emperor Julian, actually, when Julian was fighting the Alamanni in the Western Emperor in the Western Empire. You'll remember Julian was sent to the West to uh, kind of counter this Alamanni raid invasion of the Western Empire. And this this is where uh, some of our early information about Valentinian comes from. And it's not really good because w what seems to have happened was that the Romans had planned some sort of ambush of a group of Alamanni soldiers. And it didn't go very well. Uh, the, the ambush essentially failed. And what it really looks like is that the officer in charge of this this ambush kind of throws Valentinian under the bus and blames him. He basically says that it was Valentinian's fault that the ambush didn't work out. And obviously this was very damaging to Valentinian's career. And he actually kind of goes under the radar for a few years after this. He goes to one of his family's estates and uh, no one really sees him for sometime after this. Uh, but nevertheless, Valentinian does manage to get back into the good graces of the military, and he even becomes the commander of several elite uh, military units, such as the Cornuti, uh, Scutari, and Scoli Palantine, or Palatine, however you want to pronounce that. But these are all, you know, not not just like run-of-the-mill uh, uh, military units. These are These are real, generally elite uh, soldiers. Valentinian also was a Nicene Christian, according to one Sozman. Now, many of the people who appointed Valentinian as emperor wanted him to also choose an imperial colleague. 
uh, done for a couple of reasons. One, because the Romans were kind of just in this system of having a Western emperor and an Eastern emperor. So, you know, Valentinian rules one half, he's got to have somebody rule another half. And then also, because they had just had several emperors who died pretty young, uh, Julian was, uh, I believe, not past uh, 35, maybe, when he died. He, he didn't rule for, especially, I know he was 29 when he ascends to the throne. And I want to say he rules for six or seven years. So he may he may have just been like 36 or 37 when he dies. Uh, I didn't look at that specifically. But he, he has a short reign and he dies young. And then Jovian, of course, only has uh, uh, eight months or so uh, and doesn't even make it to sit on the imperial throne. So there there is this notion of we need some security in case something happens here. We don't want to have to you know go through the process of selecting another candidate if... Valens, if, uh, excuse me, kind of giving things away here. If Valentinian dies, then his uh, imperial colleague can then select his next imperial colleague, and it's a more uh, stable situation. Well, so Valentinian chooses his brother Valens as his imperial colleague to the chagrin of some. Uh, Valens, as we'll talk about here, uh, doesn't exactly have a, a real stellar resume going on here. Uh, not that it's bad, it's just there's not a whole lot there. It's you know, Valentinian seems to have picked him more on the, the trust of him being his brother than any sort of uh, credentials, which, although, you know, there's something to be said for having an imperial colleague who you trust, because, you know, uh, people are constantly uh, forming conspiracies against emperors, and it's, it's not exact. You want to have people who you can trust around you. Uh, even even if the person's you know on the other side of of the empire, you still need to have people who around who you can trust. And and clearly, Valentinian trusted his brother. Now, uh, Warren Treadgold describes Valens as inexperienced, but that he soon showed some competencies. Although in the future we'll see, uh, you know, I, I in in writing. Uh, as I as I researched this this lecture, and I wrote out the the notes for this, you know, uh, I take kind of a uh, a very critical uh, stance on on Valens. But as I as I was rereading this before I started recording, um, and as I'm thinking about this more, I don't know if I'm being a little too harsh on Valens. Some of these situations he's in seem to be, uh, thing, a lot of things seem to be kind of out of his control, or, you know, he's operating on the presumption, or he's operating based on the best available information, which, although as we'll see, uh, we'll talk more about this as we get into this, uh, even though it's bad information, it's the best information he has going at the time. Okay, and again, uh, Warren Treadgold, as I mentioned here, uh, I'm using his concise history of Byzantium as one of my resources for this uh, project. Warren Treadgold is a professor of Byzantine history at St. Louis University, which is also where uh, Thomas Madden, uh, the medievalist who specializes in the Crusades, is. So you've got two uh, real heavyweights out there at St. Louis University if you're looking to study medieval or Byzantine history. Uh, and I do want to issue a bit of a, I guess you could say it's an apology, 
on this, uh, just kind of here for a moment as we talk about uh, uh, sourcing in books. Uh, first couple of episodes, the uh, uh, first couple of lectures that I've done here, uh, I'd say episodes like one, two, three, uh, maybe even more than that. Um, I was using uh, John Julius Norwich's uh, two-volume work on the Byzantine Emperor. And so the issue with that is that John Julius Norwich is not a historian. He's a journalist. And while I don't want to, you know, I'm sure the, the his book was well-researched and all this. I don't mean to, you know, cast aspersions on him. Uh, but he's not a historian, right? He doesn't deal with history and sourcing and all of this for a living. And I want to bring you guys really the, the most reputable, uh, the highest quality information. And, you know, if you were uh, taking this class in college, uh, your professor would not assign you a book by a journalist for uh, a reading list for a class. Uh, you're really only operating uh, with the sources of, of credible uh, trained historians. So again, I'm not trying to say that, you know, John Julius Norwich didn't know what he was talking about or or that he's bum or something, but for purposes of this show and for this series, I want to only bring you uh, the, the best available information from the best historians who work with this stuff uh, and know it better than anybody else. And so, you know, we're... Uh, as we go, we've got more books coming. I mean, I have, uh, for example, uh, Peter Heather, or is it maybe it's Heather, uh, his book, The Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, A New History of Roman Barbarians, which we'll be using a lot coming up here. Uh, it's a good book. And he was also in the uh, History Channel documentary series on the barbarians back. Uh, I've, I've watched uh, the episode on the Goths in preparation for this, and which, which was really fun for me because I watched that series growing up, and you could probably figure out how old I am or roughly how old I am, just from my saying this, but uh, going back onto History Vault, uh, which History.com kind of has their own streaming service for all of their old uh, uh, documentaries, you know, back when History Channel actually did documentaries and not like uh, Ice Road Truckers and um, uh, I don't even know what else is on History anymore. I don't watch it. Uh, but back in the day, I think the series, I, I might have said this, uh, the series came out in 2004 that a really good uh, uh, documentary series on a number of these barbarian tribes that we're going to be encountering soon here. Uh, the Goths, which again, I watched the that documentary in preparation for this, and Peter Heather, whose book I'm reading, is in that documentary series. Uh, there's also one on the Huns, which I watched recently uh, in preparation for future episodes, and they have them on uh, the Vandals as well, and I think are the, uh, the Franks... And I think there's also one of the Saxons, um, who will talk. We won't talk a lot about the Saxons because it's just not relevant. I, I, I do eventually want to get this more back uh, Oriental focused. Uh, we are going to have to do some stuff here more Western focused, but as time goes on, it's going to have to become more Eastern focused because again, this is Eastern Roman Empire uh, themed series. Uh, but anyways, that was a bit of a tangent. Back to the back to the real matter here. Uh, so Valens served as a member of the Protectores Domestici, which is a, a fairly elite military unit. Now, he was not a commander of a unit. Uh, he wasn't really an officer. He seems to be have been just a 
soldier within the unit, which is not, it's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad. Um, but not quite the same as being uh, an officer in one of those units. Uh, Valens did manage to fight off a challenge from a guy named Procopius, uh, who well, I believe was Julian the Apostate's cousin. And Procopius survived the failed um, invasion of the Persian Empire. And so he attempts to unseat Valens there in the east. Uh, Valens is the sits in uh, Constantinople as the Eastern Emperor, and then Valentinian sits in uh, Mediolanum as the Western Emperor. Uh, uh, by this point in time, uh, the seat of power in the West has moved away from Rome and is now at Mediolanum, which is present-day Milan, and eventually will also move uh, to Ravenna, which is near Venice, but it's not it's not the same city. Uh, which I find interesting because of the of the two brothers here, uh, Valentinian seems to be kind of the higher rated, uh, uh, higher uh, viewed viewed better, kind of the, the the superior of the two brothers, right? And he chooses to be in the West, which is even at this point in time the weaker of the two sides of the emperor of the empire. So I just find that interesting. I'm not really sure why. Uh, Valentinian decides to go to the west and why Valens is in the east, which is the, the more important, the stronger side of the empire, if uh, Valentinian was the guy who was chosen. I mean, they could have, you know, when when the new emperor was selected, they could have selected Val Valens, but they didn't. They chose Valentinian. Uh, so, not not sure why that happened, but j just an interesting note. Uh, Valens also fights off uh, some issues with the Goths, along the Danube River issue there, which is a little ironic when you consider uh, what happens in the future. Uh, and then he also asserts, reasserts Roman control over Armenia, which is an important Christian ally of the Romans against the Persians. Armenia was the first, if I'm remembering this correctly, the first uh, uh, country to officially declare itself a Christian country was Armenia. Uh, and, and still to this day, Armenians are mostly Christian. Um, and that they, the Armenians were an important ally for the Romans fighting against the Persians because, again, up until, up until really uh, a couple of years after uh, Valens and Valentinian ascend to the throne, the Persians are the greater threat to the Roman Empire. As, as we're going to, and really it's only in the time period that we're about to enter, where the, the Persian front becomes far less important than what's going on on the northern uh, fronts for the empire, along the, the Danube and the Rhine rivers, as we'll see here. Treadgold also says that the two brothers attempted to reduce the bloat of the imperial bureaucracy, uh, fight corruption, and make up for lost revenue. Part of their plan was to reconfiscate a number of pagan temples, which had been reinstated under Julian the Apostate, again, because he was pagan, uh, and, and use that land to add to the imperial revenue, basically. Valens, now we said Valentinian was a Nicene Christian, but Valens was an Arian Christian. And so one, another thing that Valens does is he reinstates the banishment of St. Athanasius, which constant. Uh, sorry, Constantius II 
initiated years earlier. And this caused a bit of a stir with the Nicene Christian population of the Eastern Empire, which was gaining in uh, uh, gravitas and popularity. You know, uh, I'd recommend you go back and listen to our last episode where we talked about the Cappadocian Fathers, where we kind of talked about how in this point in time, you know, uh, uh, Nicene Christianity is kind of in the ascent and Arian Christianity, although it's still, like we said, still around, it was condemned at Nicaea in 325, and there's going to be another council in Constantinople uh, in 380, which condemns Arianism a second time. Uh, so Nicene Christianity is on the ascent, and the uh, heretical Arian Christianity is on the bit of a descent. So you can see why it would not have been a very popular move for Valens to uh, banish a very prominent uh, and by this point, obviously very well-known uh, Nicene Christian uh, bishop. Now, Valen's real downfall is going to come with this, I guess you could call it like a resettlement policy for the Goths, or at least resettlement would be a term that we would use today to kind of describe the same situation. Now, the Goths were a Germanic barbarian tribe which had lived for many years in kind of kind of along the, the western coast of the Black Sea in what is today Ukraine and uh, possibly even a little bit of uh, Moldova. <clears throat> uh, the Goths had been living there for a long time. We've mentioned them a number of times, uh, a couple, or not a number, but I, we've mentioned them before on this on this uh, show, and the Romans at times had fought with them and had fought against them, so the Romans know who they are. Uh, and kind of characteristic, and we're going to see that, you know, as time goes on here, you're just going to see more and more, this is going to become a recurring theme from basically this point in history up until, I mean, uh, well through the Middle Ages, is that the Goths were run out of their home, uh, native homeland by the Huns. Now the Huns, sure, most people, if you're if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have an idea of who the Huns are. But they were a warlike, nomadic, uh, cavalry-based uh, group from Central Asia. Their origins are really unknown. Uh, no one knows where the Huns came from. No one uh, there. There's some idea. There's some theories, and we'll talk more about them as we as we kind of. But we're going to have a whole. Uh, uh, episode, possibly several episodes on the age of migration or the migratory period, whatever you want to call it, the, the barbarians, the barbarian invasion of the Roman Empire. Uh, and the Huns, you know, I was uh, reading here in, in this book, The Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, it, we can't even pin down what language family the Hunnic language was, right? So we can't pin down, so when I say language family, we don't know, it wasn't Germanic, uh, we don't know if it was Turkic. It might have been uh, similar to, uh, uh, I can't remember. Um, it's like Finno, and then there's another word that's escaping me at the moment. But like uh, similar to what, like the Magyar, or Magyar, uh, I'm not sure which one. I say Magyar. Uh, my father, his historian, says Magyar. Uh, but what would be the Hungarian language? Because... Uh, so there's a number of reasons. For, for, for one, the Huns don't have a written language, uh, so there's no record that they leave behind for it. And then, two, even we can't even uh, either, either, 
talks about this in his book, is that even the names of the Huns, which we have in recorded history, either from the Romans or written Germanic sources, uh, is that a lot of the Hunnic names we have are often uh, Germanicized. So we aren't even seeing the Hunnic names in their true form. It's like, a, you know, for uh, like, Joseph is the English version of Giuseppe, right? You know, you kind of, you, you take a name and you kind of give it a, a different linguistic you know, twist because like for the, the first people to encounter the Huns would have been the Goths who spoke a Germanic language. So they might, they would have written in their sources the Hunnic names with a Germanic kind of twist to it. So we can't even identify from common Hunnic names what language group it would have, they, they would have come from. Um, my guess, uh, I would lean towards they're probably a Turkic people, but there, there's really no way to know for sure. Uh, it's a great mystery of history. And a lot, a lot of, you know, this, this is going to be a common theme of, of, you know, Germanic tribes being disrupted either through, you know, climate change is a big thing that people talk about now that forced the uh, Germanic tribes to move further south towards uh, Roman borders, obviously the Huns and other uh, Central Asian uh, nomads coming across the Eurasian steppe, which again, you're, you're going to have with that, you're going to have the Huns, but then there's going to be the Avars, the Magyars, the Bulgars, the Mongols, the Timurids, uh, the Turks. It's going to be a whole number of, of Central Asian uh, groups that just kind of follow one after another after another and really give uh, uh, Western civilization a hard go of it. And it's really not going to be until, uh, geez, I mean, the 1500s when that's well, not even really that, because the Ottomans as well, uh, or Turkic, although they started, they didn't start in Central Asia and then storm through uh, what was at the what the, what was at the time of the Islamic world. But uh, the last wave that really hits uh, either the Islamic or the Islamic world or Christendom would really be the Timurids. Uh, so you can kind of get an idea of how long. Uh, something like this is going to go on for and just it's it's a re like I said especially when when you're like me and you study you know late antique and medieval history this this is happening all the time the, the central Asian groups that kind of come out of nowhere and and really uh, are, are exceptional warriors exceptional horsemen and give uh, the western world fits for hundreds and hundreds of years so the Goths, uh, again, their homeland would have been in like Western Ukraine, have now been run out of their homeland and they've been chased by the Huns down south. And now they're at the Danube, which is again, the, the border between Rome and kind of the, the non-Roman world, right? And so the Goths kind of get this idea that they want to cross the Danube into Roman territory as essentially refugees fleeing the Huns. And so they send uh, emissaries across the Danube River to go talk to the Emperor Valens, which they actually, and again, re reading this out of uh, Heather's, Heather's book, uh, Emperor Valens was actually in Antioch at this time, which was which is in Syria. And so uh, the Gothic representatives had to go all the way from the Danube River, travel through half, like basically half the Roman Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, down to Syria to meet with Valens, but they eventually they get there, they meet with him, 
And they do come to a deal where uh, the Goths will come across the Danube River, settle in Roman territory. Uh, a lot of European, the European part of the Eastern Roman Empire is kind of vacant. It, it, not to say that there's no one there and that it's not and it's not like productive, but it's really not the moneymaker of the Eastern Empire. Uh, that's more the Asian and Egyptian uh, provinces. And so uh, from the Romans' perspective, you know, there, there's a number of benefits to this. So first of all, you get a new, uh, uh, one, of, one of the uh, parts of the deal is that the Goths offer a number of their men as, as soldiers. So this is a good source of new uh, troops for the Romans, which is never a bad thing. Uh, you can settle them in an uncultivated uh, area of the empire. And so as that land gets cultivated, it produces revenue, which means you get more tax income. So you get a guarantee of soldiers and additional uh, re uh, revenue for the empire, which is never a bad thing. And so on its face, this looks like a good deal. And Valens even promises the Goths to provide them with supplies to make their transition to their new homes easier, right? Food for the journey, uh, clothing, that sort of thing. And this was fairly common with the Roman. This didn't just happen with the Goths. There were, there were other instances of uh, barbarian, and not whole tribes, but perhaps, you know, uh, families or, or certain smaller groups within a tribe, the Romans would resettle them in, in a vacant part of the empire and do this, you know, set them up with farms so they can cultivate the land, produce revenue, uh, uh, obligation of military service from, you know, a certain amount of the men in the group. Uh, oftentimes, this kind of deal uh, worked out for the Romans quite well. Um, <laughs> however, did not work out very well in this instance. So unfortunately, after the Goths cross the Danube River, their aid never comes. Uh, the immediate blame lays on two local commanders who, whose names were Lupicinus and Maximus. Uh, they seem to have withhold, withheld uh, the supplies from the Goths which, were, which they were supposed to receive. Part of me does want to blame Valens a bit for this because, you know, he, he's the emperor, the buck stops with him, but... He was still in Antioch at this point in time, uh, and for even information to reach him from the Danube that that something was going wrong with the Gothic resettlement would have taken a long time, and then for him to even respond to any of that, part, like I said, my, I'm kind of having a bit of a double take here where I'm like, mm, I shouldn't be as harsh on, on Valens as I initially was going to, uh, but I... It, there's no doubt this this situation went south real i mean real bad real fast um and valens has to he has to carry some blame in this because again he's the emperor and the goths experienced nothing but hardships uh throughout throughout this whole time and even at one point they're so there's they're they're starving to the point where they are selling the goths sell their children into slavery in exchange for dogs so they can eat the dogs. I mean, that is how desperate and how bad their situation was. They were selling their own children as slaves, not even, not even in exchange for, not in exchange for beef, not in exchange for something cheaper like pork. They're literally trading their children in slavery in exchange for dogs so they can eat the dogs. I mean, it was really, it was an awful, awful situation that this could not have gone worse for either the Romans or the Goths as we'll get into 
right here. So, at one point in time, uh, the Romans marched the Goths to this city called Martianople, which was uh, on the Black Sea coast. And the idea was that the Goths would be able to resupply in the markets of Martianople, get the food that they were supposed to get, get the other supplies they were supposed to get. However, uh, the garrison of Martianople does not allow the Goths in. They're, they're locked out of the city. And it is at this point that they just snap. They're they're done. They're like this this cannot get any worse. And they they you know they need their they, they need food. I mean, goodness, you know the, these people are really in a terrible situation. And so their leader, the Gothic leader, who's a guy named Fritigern, uh, who who led the Goths away from you know fleeing the Huns down to the Danube across the river. He's been their leader for a while at this point. The Goths under Fritigern. Uh, take up an attack on the garrison of Martianople, and they actually manage to storm into the town. The garrison could not hold back against them, and the Goths sacked the city. And now after this, after the sack of Martianople, the Goths are free to roam through Thrace, and they're just raiding as they go. Basically, you know, we tried, we tried playing nice with you guys. We tried to be conciliatory. That didn't work, so you don't like that? We'll try this, right? And so this requires now Valens to uh, lead an army against this new uh, Gothic barbarian enemy. Now Valens does put out a call for reinforcements. Uh, his new imperial colleague and nephew, Gratian, uh, because by this point Valentinian is dead, and so Valentinian's son is Gratian, who's the new Western Empire emperor. But Valens call so Valens puts out a call for him to bring reinforcements, and uh, Gratian will bring reinforcements. He is a bit delayed though, with another conflict with the Alamanni along the northern border. At border, as I said, uh, conflict with the Alamanni along the border is just going to be reoccurring over the years as we go here. Now, as Valens approaches Adrianople, which is a town actually not too far from Constantinople, if you look at it on a map, it's really not far apart at all. Uh, Valens receives some faulty intelligence, which uh, led him to believe that the Goths had significantly less numbers than they than they did. It seems that he was under Valens is under the impression that there's about ten thousand Goths. However, they number probably closer to twelve thousand, or sorry, twenty thousand. So his 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 impression is that they have half as many men as they actually do which is going to be very, very bad for him, as we're about to see. So, when Valens hears that the, the Goths only number about 10,000, he basically forsakes his reinforcements and marches straight on into battle. He does not wait for Gratian to arrive from the west, and he had other reinforcements that were coming from other parts of the east. He figures, there's only 10,000 10, of them, I can take them on by myself. Now, we also need to keep in mind, kind of before we get into the battle here, that the Gothic army which Valens is about to face is not your typical uh, Rome versus barbarian fight. 
Okay. Now, over the years, the Romans, when they've been fighting the barbarians, and when I say barbarians, I'm referring to you know the Celts and uh, different Germanic groups, right? The Romans would have seen everybody who was not Roman as barbarian, right? The, the Carthaginians, even though we today would view the Carthaginians as more civilized than like the the various Gallic tribes. Uh, the Romans viewed anyone who was not Roman as barbarian. So Carthaginians are barbarians, Persians are barbarians, the Greeks are barbarians, the kind of Greco-Egyptians of like Cleopatra would have been barbaric, right? Uh, uh, but what I'm talking about here is Rome versus you know Celtic and Germanic barbarians. And so over the years, uh, there are really two aspects about the Roman military that gave them an advantage over barbarian enemies. One was their uh, the the discipline and the order, which their armies had. Right, they're they're very well organized, fought in uh, very organized formations, whereas the barbarians were a bit more haphazard in their in their approach to battle and their in their battle formations. The second one was the Romans' military technology. So the Romans wore better armor than the than the barbarians. They had better shields than the barbarians. They had better uh, swords. And uh, the Romans also used the pilum, right, the javelin, which they threw before charging into battle. Now, in the later days of the empire, they have the uh, plumbata dart, right? But uh, the Goths are coming into, or I should say barbarians generally, are coming into battle uh, not as well armored, not as well prepared, not not as well disciplined. Um, and so this gives the Romans a serious, this is why the Romans were able, that's why Caesar was able to fight off fight through all the Gauls, all the tribes in Gaul, the various tribes in Gaul. This is why, you know, they're able to conquer the Britons. And, you know, they did have some success against the Germans. Obviously, the, the Teutoburg Forest is, was a disaster, but it was only one battle in, in, I mean, you know, centuries of conflict. But the Goths are not like this. The Goths are different at this point in time. And especially, you, you have to consider that they've been raiding through Roman territory leading up to the battle here. So they are probably as they raid through these Roman towns, taking Roman uh, soldiers' armor, shields, swords, etc. So coming into this battle, the Romans do not have that advantage of better weapons, better armor, and, and the like. You also have to keep in mind, the Goths are also not starving at this point in time. Okay? Initially, when they came into the empire and before uh, the sack of Marcianople, right? They're starving. They're selling their children in exchange for dogs so they can eat the dogs. Uh, but after raiding through uh, what we would call the region of Thrace, is modern Bulgaria, basically, uh, the Goths are well fed. So they have equal uh, armor and weapons to the Romans. They're well fed. And let's keep this in mind, too. They're pissed off, right? They've just been. Yeah, uh, severely mistreated by the Romans, and they cannot wait to get into battle and get their hands on those damn Romans and show them what they think about them. Right? The Goths are the Goths are real jazzed up for this fight. And so these are the things that you need to consider as to part of why the battle is going to go the way that it does. Right? And I should, you know, I. I it's easy to be critical of Valens, you know, 
kind of going headlong into this battle. But again, you know, the, his, your intelligence is your intelligence. I mean, how how is he supposed to? I, I guess you could say, how is he supposed to know that? You know, the Goths had double the men than he did. I guess really, you'd, <laughs> you'd have to have your your spies executed because they gave you such terrible information. Uh, I mean, argue, you could very well make the argument that had Valens waited for Gratian to show up and his other Eastern uh, reinforcements to show up, the battle would not have been... I, I don't really think... You know, this happened over a thousand years ago. I don't think I need... I'm spoiling anything here. It's a disastrous Roman defeat. Um, but, I mean, certainly you'd think if he waited at least for Gratian to show up, it probably... Uh, goes in favor of the Romans. But so, the battle, the start of the battle actually goes in the Romans' favor. However, it does seem that uh, Valens at one point got a little too ambitious and pushed a little too far forward because he thought he could finish it, finish it off right there. And what happens is, uh, the tide of battle turns when, on the Roman uh, right flank, a heavy Gothic cavalry charge rolls up that flank. And so now the Romans lose uh, their discipline in their lines. They uh, basically become squished together. And so they can't maneuver. Uh, and this this causes a, basically a panic. Uh, not unlike what happened to the Romans at the Battle of Cannae against the uh, Carthaginians, right? They kind of get encircled, they're squished together, they can't move, and they're just it really must have been terrifying just waiting to to get hacked down. You know, you see the ten, ten guys in front of you get hacked down, and it's like, well, you're just waiting uh, until it's your turn to get killed, basically, and you can't turn around and run anywhere because you're, you're squished with, with all of these other guys around you, right? Uh, so this completely breaks the Roman morale, and, was, and it was only a matter of time before you know, thousands of men uh, meet their fate. Roughly two-thirds of the Roman army uh, dies at the Battle of Adrianople, including Valens himself. Now, let's keep in mind that it wasn't that long ago that the Romans have their uh, disastrous campaign against the Persians. So these are this is like back-to-back -back military embarrassments for the empire. And not to mention, I mean, losing two-thirds of the army, the, uh, I've mentioned this before, but, you know, veteran, elite... Uh, uh, soldiers in these days are not easily replaceable. It takes years and years and years of training and and fighting for for these soldiers to get to the point where you know where they are like a grizzled veteran, and you can't just replace that. In you know, surely you can train replacements in six months, a year, whatever, but you can't replace the you know ten years of experience. You can't replace the however many years these guys have been around. You know, you, you can't just turn around and in a year recover from this sort of thing. And especially with uh, having two instances, like, and now the Romans didn't lose this many men when they invaded the Persian Empire, but still, I mean, losses for sure. Uh, uh, this is not setting, up, setting the Romans up for success in the future. Um, I think this, this is a part... Uh, of the historiography that I think is, gets ignored a bit is, you, again, you cannot replace that many guys. You cannot replace that many soldiers that easily, especially you know guys who are going to be serving with the emperor. They're not going to be green recruits. These are going to be veteran guys. These are going to be elite units. 
it's it's hard for the average person who just kind of sits down for this in in a history class to even those of us who really study this i think it's very hard for us to understand how serious loss that is and how difficult it is to replace uh highly trained soldiers like that yeah and this is the roman empire's greatest military disaster initially when i wrote this i i said the, since the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest in 980. However, as I researched this further, I found that uh, in between then and this point, there was also the Battle of Edessa in 260 AD. Now, you might remember in the first episode, we talked about the crisis of the third century. Well, in 260 AD, the Romans fight the Persians at the Battle of Edessa, lose, and the Emperor Valerian is actually captured by the Persians. That if I'm remembering correctly, that was the only time a Roman emperor was ever captured by a foreign power. So that that was a disaster as well, just, just like this was a d disaster for the Romans. Now, fortunately for the Romans, the Goths were not able to take the town of Adrianople itself. This is brought to us by the historian and soldier, Emianus uh, Marcellinus. However, uh, the Romans have a real problem on their hands. You know, they couldn't muster enough uh, forces and power to eliminate the Goths permanently, but the Goths also lacked the power to be anything more than a raiding uh, threat to the empire at this point in time. The Goths do not have, you know, the capabilities of now, okay, they just won the Adrianople, now they're going to march on Constantinople and take uh, the Eastern Roman capital. That's that's not in the cards right now. They don't have the ability to do that. However, in the future, they are going to uh, uh, get to the point where they can take, you know, major, major Roman cities. Uh, but for this point in time, it's it's this weird situation where the Romans are not, they don't really have the, the power to get rid of these people, but they're, they're still just kind of hanging around in, in like what we would now call the Balkans, and trying to figure out what to do with them. Now, the uh, a future emperor, Theodosius, who we'll talk about in future episodes, uh, does manage to settle the Goths down, gets you know settles them in, a la in, in land, which he promised which was promised to them, gets them their supplies, does work out sort of alliance with them. The Goths do fight with the Romans uh, for some time, but the Goths uh, never fully assimilate. Now, obviously, the, you might have some individual Goths who might fully assimilate into Roman society, but the Goths, as, as a kind of ethnic group, never f fully become uh, one with the Roman Empire. Ultimately, uh, as we know, the Goths in the future will be the people who uh, greatly contribute to the downfall of the Empire in the West. And so that is all we have for this episode. If you've made it this far in the video uh, on YouTube, please give us a thumbs up. I always appreciate that. You can also find us, uh, there's an Instagram page for the show. It is called, if you search on Instagram, academics underscore 95, and that's spelled A-C-A-D-E-M-I-X underscore 95. That is the 
Instagram page for the show where I post updates when episodes are uploaded. And I'll also post, you know, like funny history memes like Byzantine and medieval history memes. Just, just, yeah, it's just fun. Something, something you do when you're, uh, you know, kind of in this space of, of producing history content, you know, trying to build an online presence and all that sort of thing. Uh, the YouTube channel is actually, it's called Professor Wren. That's the name of the YouTube channel. Uh, although the series uh, is called Saturdays for the Byzantines. If you search that, it, it does come up. Um, but part of the reason uh, I'm putting this, I'm not naming the channel after the series right now is because, of course, I have ideas for future uh, podcast lecture series that I want to bring to you, and I don't necessarily want to create new accounts for each of those. I'd rather have them all set up through one account. So I gave it the title of Professor Wren, and perhaps if this uh, if this endeavor becomes uh, fairly successful for me, I'll start using my real name. Uh, good for public notoriety and that sort of thing. But uh, if you are watching us on YouTube and you've made it this far, again, hit like, subscribe, ring the notification bell so you never miss another episode. Give us a five-star review and a subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Give us a follow on Spotify. Follow us as well on Google Play. And so that's all I've got for this episode, and we'll see you all next time.